the Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. Welcome to the Intersection Education Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. Our guest today is Dr. Bonnie Stelmack, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Education and Educational Policy Studies at the University of Alberta. She's been an educational researcher and university instructor since 2006, first at the University of Saskatchewan and now at the University of Alberta. Her research focus is on parent involvement primarily concerned with whether and or how secondary school parents feel in community with their children's schools. She has a particular interest in rural and northern school contexts, owing to her personal and professional experience living and teaching in rural and northern Alberta. Now, if you like what you're hearing, connect with us, Intersection Education. You can go to our website, intersectioneducation.com, follow us on Twitter at intersectioned, we're even on Facebook, and we really appreciate it when you rate us on iTunes and leave a review. Here's my conversation with Dr. Bonnie Stelmack. Dr. Bonnie Stelmack, welcome to the Intersection Education Podcast. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you for inviting me to do this. Oh, we're very happy to have you. And I want to get right into one of the main topics that I wanted to speak with you today, and that was about school community. Um, that's one of your, your main focus um, areas, but I, I thought before we got into actually discussing some of the minutiae, I, I wouldn't mind talking about how you define school community and who is a part of a school community because I feel like there are some uh, different thoughts. So when you think school community or when you're researching that topic, define that 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 term, school community, and who might be part of the school community. I think it's popular in academic research to look very broadly at the term school community. People would consider all stakeholders Business, organizations in a community, policymakers, as well as teachers, parents, principal, students. I'm thinking of it in a particular way with respect to the student population and their families. So obviously the teachers and the leadership team are part of the school community, but I'm thinking of students and families next. I don't look at community members Although I have in past research when I've looked at communities where there were indigenous populations, um, looked at community members there. But that's how I define it. Mm -hmm. And I know that there are multiple ways to think about it, but I'm looking at more of a, um, I guess, the immediate population that work together. And that actually um, brings in my second question, which was, d does that concept of school community change depending on the context? You talked about in Indigenous communities, how, how that might shift. Are there, um, do you want to maybe get into that a little bit more and perhaps explain or, or, or talk about, are there other situations where you shift your idea of school community based on that context? 
The whole idea of community came about um, from a professional experience I had. I was kind of in a workshop situation with teachers and the fact came out that parents are driving across the city to bring their children to a particular school. And I thought, oh, the neighborhood school concept is dead, right? right? And I don't know if you've ever heard the term zombie category before. I haven't. Beck and Beck Gershheim came up with this term, and it really means it's something that exists in our lexicon but has lost meaning. So if you think um, friend, when Facebook started to use the word friend, the word friend has kind of lost all its meaning. Community is one of those terms as well. Because it's co-opted by everybody. There's community policing, there's community health, there's community um, arts, right? Community theater. It's used by everybody. So what does this term really mean when you talk about school community? And there are some scholars who have entertained what that means from an academic perspective. Mm -hmm. um, Gail Furman is a good example of that. But I think when you ask about context and does it change, yes, but I don't think it's so much geography as it is chronology hmm. or history because the social fabric really impacts what community means. So when I started looking at the question, what makes secondary school parents feel in community with their school, I'm asking a question that could be contingent upon the environment itself. It could be physical. Um, but there's also research to say that communities exist online, right? I mean, we're doing a podcast. There's a community who listens to this, right? We don't have to be meeting face-to-face. -face. So it's a pretty complicated term when you start to pull it apart. That's what I found. But I I think I made some assumptions when I started my last research project on rural northern contexts. Mm -hmm. um, I asked, what is the sense of community for parents in the rural and northern context? And of course, I made some assumptions, right? Um, I assumed that the north is different, but I found nobody thought they lived in the north, right? And this was over five hours north of Edmonton. Right. So technology has shifted that because it has erased distance. Mm -hmm. Right. Geograph geographical distance doesn't exist anymore. And, and that was actually one of the interesting things I wanted to talk to you about was, do you think that there is um, a changing concept of school community? Have you found that parents or school communities define themselves differently generationally or over time. You mentioned technology as, as, as being a big shift in our thinking around technology or around school community. Um, do you, do you find that parents or I don't know, municipalities or areas see the school in different ways or their attachment and their relationship to the school in different ways over time? Have you seen a shift? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. I mean, my research data wouldn't permit me to say that. Right. What was surprising to me was the similarity among urban and rural parents. Similarity? Yes. I would have expected you to say the opposite. Talk to me about 
what was similar between their perspectives. I assumed the same thing. I started out looking at rural northern contexts. And of course, to make rural specific claims, you have to look at the comparison. So then I collected some data from urban parents. There are differences, of course, right? And there, there's one that is pretty stereotypical. Rural parents, yes, feel a very strong sense of community with the school. But that is because it's a seamless boundary between school and the external community when you're talking about a small town, right? There, there really is no boundary because you see people everywhere. In the urban context, of course, you never see the people from school. It's pretty odd to run into a teacher or, you know, the principal, right? Not like in a small town where it's a fishbowl, you know, as we often say. But what is similar is they all crave it. And what they crave is being known. Hmm. So I was shocked that urban parents describe their children's schools as cold. Clinical is a term that one parent used. They felt processed, not related to, not valued or appreciated. There are exceptions, of course, but what stands out for me thematically is that sense of displacement. So in my research, secondary school parents feel displaced because they no longer can be volunteers in the classroom. They're not cutting out bulletin board stuff or pasting things together. And their children don't want to see them at assemblies, right? Mm -hmm. So they literally feel displaced. Even when they show up, there's no chairs for them because no one's expecting parents to show up, right? right. At awards ceremonies, right? Um, so they feel displaced in that way. Urban parents feel feel displaced because I don't know. And it's not even because of the size of the school, but they're, they feel like they're a checkbox. Oh yeah. We have to include parents because it's the right thing to do. And we're told to do that. And policy says we should do that, but they don't feel part of it. And it's not necessarily the teachers, although sometimes it is the teachers don't know their names and they know they don't know their names and, you know, one parent comment stands out for me. She's gone to meet the teacher night, introduced herself or tried to, you know, make a connection with the teacher. And then in a subsequent year, didn't bother. And then after that, just didn't go anymore. Mm. Right. Like there is no point and they don't remember who I am and it doesn't matter. In some cases, they weren't even sure they knew their children's names. And that could be a class size thing. Right. I know there are like phys ed classes that are just huge nowadays right. Right? right for efficiencies but um so there that's that was surprising that similar feeling of displacement for different reasons but they all want to feel part of they all want to be known mm -hmm. let's stay on the topic of that wanting to be known you talked about this feeling of displacement, but I imagine you ran into instances where there were schools that were putting in place strategies that reduced that feeling of displacement or were doing things that allowed parents to feel like they had a place inside of the schools. 
Did you see any of those strategies or maybe you want to share some of the strategies that schools used, the things they did to reduce that feeling of parents being kind of pushed out of the way or actually being known in schools? The urban and rural context is going to be different. Okay. The rural context doesn't have such a task when it comes to this because often parents just feel comfortable because they're out and about and they see teachers because they're neighbors or it's always the post office and the grocery store. <laughs> These are what um, Whitnow, who's an American scholar of rural small towns in America, um, he calls these are neighboring practices. They are critical in creating that um, category of belonging. So it's not all idyllic in a rural context. I mean, being known means belonging in a sense. Um, and if you aren't out and about, then you are shuffled to the outskirts, literally and figuratively, right? Um, so for practices in a rural context, they have the typical things that are, um, you know, have been studied, you know, meet the teacher, parent-teacher conference nights. They ask parents to volunteer. And in a high school, it gets tougher. Mm -hmm. School council seems to be the place where parents and educators see their place for parents. Um, and often I will ask, because it's school council members who often volunteer for my studies, Right because they know about it. They hear about it. And I ask, why do you do it? What, what's your interest in school council? They want to find out what's going on. And that is the best way. They want to stay connected. And that's where they see their place. So that's a pretty limited opportunity. And if you're someone whose work situation doesn't allow you to attend an evening meeting, or there's a variety of reasons that might become, you know, realities that prevent you from attending, then that's all you kind of have, right? Um, and that's, but, you know, schools are pretty happy with that, right? It's pretty traditional. Yeah. The urban context is um, more challenging, I'd say, and that is because parents don't live there. But they do the traditional things too. They have the school council. And again, parents engage in school council because this is an opportunity. This is one place where I know I do belong, right? They're telling me to come. And this is where I find out how things work. Um, high school, you know, has some kind of mystery for parents when it's their first child going through, right? Absolutely. So they do go to learn and get information. One of the things that I would say both contexts do more and more, and I find it ironic and a little heartbreaking actually too because of the energy that's expended is digital communication. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I'm no tech savvy, so I can't even name all the things that they do, but they use those. They also have um, School Zone, Power School, Maplewood. I don't even yeah. know. You, you know, a number the of student information systems that are open to parents, right? Exactly. And they have teachers updating those daily. They have teachers creating websites to keep parents informed. Um, lots of teachers, this is more elementary school, but they use apps and I can't even remember the names of them, but they'll send a picture of here's your child, you know, playing on the swings today. Seesaw or whatnot. Yeah. All the number of, yeah. 
There you go. Now, do you feel that those are, you say it's heartbreaking. Do you feel like that's an effective strategy? Uh, the feedback that you've got from parents, does that give them a sense of community, of um, relationship with the school and their child in it? No, not at all. That's what's heartbreaking for me because, well, the money is one thing, I guess, but the time that educators put into this. It used to be the newsletter, and that still exists, mm -hmm. and some of them are, you know, 15 pagers. They're outstanding. And do parents access this? No. Sometimes they do, and you always have those keeners, and that's why it gets done, right? Because the keener parents will complain. What happened to this? What happened to that? Where's the newsletter? Where's the principal's message, right? But that is the thing that came clearest for me with the urban parents because they talked about um, the coldness and the lack of relationship and connection that is created because of that. She goes, yeah, I know I could go on school zone and check out this and that every day, but I don't bother, but that's not community. No. And that to me was the operative statement. That's not community. And there is a big difference. And one of the things that I think is conflated in this area of study is information and communication is not relationship. So I'm sure you've heard it, Corey, a million times. It's all about relationships, yep. right? Yeah. We love that. And you throw that out to a crowd and everybody's nodding in agreement. Everybody knows that. But what does that mean? Well, they think maybe one interpretation is let's send out all the information. We value you. We mm -hmm. want you to know this. Please have this information. However, that doesn't build relationship. Yeah. So – that is that. That was surprising for me. That is surprising. Now it sounds like you are saying um, information transmission, especially digital, doesn't necessarily create um, community. It sounds like, from what I'm, if I'm, if I'm getting it right, we can actually reduce some of the time that we do the, do those type of digital transmission or information transmission activities, and if we increase the amount of activities where we have more interactions face-to-face -face or maybe a phone call with a parent where we call them by their first name or when we see them in the hallways, we know their first name and say, oh, hey, Mrs. So-and-so or hey, you know, Barbara or Bill or whatnot. Those are the types of activities that are going to give us better relationships and create a better sense of school community and the parents will see themselves as having a place inside of it. Yes, it sounds very old-fashioned and too simple, doesn't it? <laughs> but you know what? I I think that there's there's a you know there's a couple of things in operation here with society that make this difficult. First of all, um, you know I don't know if you've read any of Sherry Turkle's work. I haven't on just the the way society has shifted and how we are perhaps the most disconnected connected society. But texting has become our mode of communication, right? People don't even like when the phone rings anymore. And please do not leave a voice message. Like, come on, <laughs> how dare you, yeah. right? We've come to that stage. So there, we're working with an efficiency model when it comes to our connections, right? Well, I'll just text. So in one sense, it's constant, right? People are constant, constantly in touch with each other, but the quality of the communication is low, Right. And this is the problem with 
the communications that come out from schools. I mean, parents will appreciate things like pictures of whatever, graduation or, you know, sports events, drama events. They will appreciate that because you can connect with people. There's image there. There are live subjects, so to speak, right? Reading text and information doesn't engage you. But you're so right. I mean, parents, they feel something when somebody knows them, even their name. And you know what it's like when someone doesn't know you and you know you've introduced yourself to that person before? Yeah. It's like, oh, they couldn't even bother to remember my name. So um, that's just not cool with them, right? So, yeah, I think there's nothing fancy about it but good old-fashioned connection that is face-to-face, which is not always possible for all parents, um, but that works better. And that's where the rural contexts have an advantage, right? Because, you know, um, there's something called contact hypothesis theory. The more contact you have with someone, the more likely you are to bond with them. Mm -hmm. And that is the case. It can be superficial in a rural context too. Don't get me wrong here. It's not like everybody loves each other and really, really knows at a deep level who someone is. Mm -hmm. But there is something to be said for familiarity and trying to create a sense of community at at least a low level. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I want to move into um, education a bit more generally. Um, Is there something about learning or education or schools that you believe is really true, but when you bring it up or when you talk about it, you get some pushback on from some people? Do you want me to tackle a cliche or a platitude? Totally up to you. Something I think I know to be true. Something you think is really true about education, but when you talk about it, people are like, nah, Bonnie, I don't think that's right. Or Hmm. that's not what people are doing. Uh, Learning in a broad sense. Whatever. Well, Uh, I say a broad sense because it doesn't need to be about parental relationships with schools. It can just yeah teaching education you're a teacher well i think one of the things i learned recently from other research um has to do with successful educational leadership okay we are i think in a mode of uh you know democracy of voice is a big thing right now and so when it comes to leadership per se we talk a lot about distributed leadership I don't think that's happening at all. Okay. I think the hierarchy is alive and well. And that relates to, I guess that's more of a system answer than a learning specific one. But we talk about empowerment. We talk about shared leadership. We talk about voice, right? But the hierarchy is still there. Give me an example that you think illustrates what you're talking about. At the school level, the principal knows the buck stops here. I'm it. And that's why it's such a stressful role. So, and, and they would never say that that the hierarchy is entrenched. They wouldn't say that, but you can tell that they're the ones who are responsible. The accountability lies with the principal. Um, it's great to have an administrative team if you do, if you're one of those contexts, but it still is up to the principal. Mm-hmm. The principal is the one who has to be up till midnight 
doing the report. The principal has to be staying behind after the event cleaning up. It's the principal. So, and when it comes to um, other stakeholders, I think that students are still at the bottom. How often do we consult with students? I think it happens more, but do we organize schools that work for students' learning? For high school children? No. Starting school at the time we do, that doesn't work with most high school kids, right? Mm -hmm. The attention span that children have now, um, it's shorter and shorter and shorter. Do we organize schools that way? No. Um, we talk about intercollaboration and inter interdisciplinary work, and that is the way to understand the world, but we still have math at 9 o'clock until 10, social studies from 10.15 to 11.15, right? Mm -hmm. um, that isn't the best way to learn, but that's how we do it, right? The, the, the time frame, the structure... That's all very traditional. And when we talk about all these wonderful things about learning and we learn much more from learning theory, that structure doesn't work. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I get pushback on that because I don't ever really raise it. Most people will nod and agree and, agree and say, yeah, but, right? It's worked. Yeah. That's what they'll probably say. Well, it's well it worked. works for we someone. Have good, we have good results or whatnot. Yeah. Which is, you know why hierarchies exist because they've been moderately effective for a segment of the population for a time. And we don't know any other way. But yeah. Yeah. As much as we study it, we don't change certain aspects of education. And so if you let's, let's talk about the learning environment part of education. And you touched on that. If you were to change or, or, or when you think of the ideal learning environment, and this doesn't necessarily be, need to be a school. We're talking about actual, you know, cognitive science and how the brain learns and things like that. What are some of the aspects of that great learning environment that you would have? And the reason that I keep it large is because you are teaching in a, in a post-secondary situation, but I imagine many of the same things would apply to learning in a high school as to learning in ele elementary. What is it about a great learning environment that you think contributes to that acquisition of knowledge and understanding? Application. Okay. My post-secondary teaching has changed a lot in the last few years, and I don't know to what I should attribute that to. Perhaps um, online teaching. I haven't done a lot of that, but I was surprised at how online teaching made me think about the connection between the content and the learner in a way that maybe I necessarily didn't do in a classroom. Um, so I say application because everything I teach, I want the learner to understand why it matters knowing this. So, I mean, we're in the academy, it's a place of theory, and we're often accused of being ivory tower, too theoretical, and... And, and here's maybe where I get pushback. This is a better answer to your previous <laughs> question. People talk about the theory practice gap. Mm -hmm. I say that does not exist if you are doing a good job at teaching. And so that's my, that's my idea of good learning. I think that's the best environment where here's a theory and, you know, you read some article and 
whatever, read a book and people understand the theory and they can define it and think about it conceptually and like, okay, now apply it to understand a problem or an issue or an event. That's what should be happening in this place. Not here's anti-racist theory, here's critical theory, here's learning theory, here's adult learning theory, and you go away and you don't even realize what they are. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like, you know, just someone to drop into a world as a foreigner and throw all kinds of tools in front of them and them not know what it's for. Right? right? I can go into Home Depot and I haven't a clue what most of that stuff does. So don't give it to me. Right. Right? So it's it's kind of it's a tool in a way. I don't believe there's a theory practice gap. And I always use the example in my classes of gravity, right? Okay, this is a podcast you can't see, but <laughs> I have this USB drive, right? And I or whatever object, right? And I drop it to the floor. I, I just let it fall. I'm like, what what happened there? Well it fell. Okay, why? Gravity. Okay, there you go. So gravity helps us understand why we wouldn't put a glass vase on the very edge of a table because we know it will fall. Now, do we talk, walk around and talk about the theory of gravity means I should not put? No, we don't. But that's how we understand our world. And the social world is no different, right? So when it comes to learning in a secondary school or K-12 to environment, they should know why they're studying Shakespeare. I know it drives teachers crazy when when kids ask, why do I have to learn this? What is this? What's good for? I'm never going to read this again. No, you're not. But are you going to be a human being? Mm-hmm. Are you going to be a human being in conflict with family? Yes. Are you going to be a human being in love? Yes. Are you going to be a human being with greed aspirations? Right? Right. So it's application. Mm-hmm. Let's let's get into a couple questions that uh, perhaps have a shorter answer, but not necessarily all the time. Do you have a book that you really like that you refer people to or that you give away that you think has something to say? I haven't given this away just because it's really new, mm-hmm. but it's called The Second Mountain, okay. A Quest for the Moral Life by David Brooks. It's a 2019. So, and it sticks in my mind because uh, it's been inspiring in some writing that I've done with a colleague, Maggie Kovach at UVS on another topic entirely. But it's, I've sort of contemplated whether it would be good as a book study for a grad class. Hmm. And the premise is the two mountains, right? The metaphor of the two mountains. And the first mountain, we spend our time trying to be successful. We look around at others and we compare ourselves to others. And whether this is, you know, you know for me in the academy, you know, how many publications do I have? Am I doing as much as someone else? Do I have as much grant money as my colleague? You know, this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody in their profession or careers or vocation has this sort of sense of being in competition, right? And so we're kind of judging ourselves through the eyes of the other in a way. The second mountain is when you are not egocentric, but you are self-centered. Centered as in you know what you value, you know what's meaningful for you, and you pursue that. Um, Jordan Peterson is 
controversial as he is for some people. Um, I think in his his book, Twelve Principles for a Simple Life, or can't remember. Um, yes. Something about chaos, 12 yes. rules to life. Yes, yes. absolutely. Um, one chapter is about do what's meaningful, not expedient. Mm-hmm. So on the second mount, mountain, you do what's meaningful and not expedient. So it's really engaging in things that are heart work, not just mm-hmm. hard work. Um, so I, I just love the message of that because, and I would love to give it to a teacher who's starting out to stay grounded. Stay grounded in why you did this to begin with, right? In the academy, that's that's an easy sell too, right? Like, why did you come here, mm-hmm. right? It's easy to get caught up in in the pace of things, right? There are so many ways that our ego is fed today that it's it's kind of hard to escape. It's like everywhere is the cookie aisle, right? Um, but that it's a good it's a good stop and check in kind of book. So that is one that I would definitely recommend and pass on. That sounds good. I'm going to check that one out. Is there something that you do every day or most days that keeps you well and healthy, ready to be able to, to be the great academic and teacher that you are? Well, I don't know if I have a choice in doing this, but I do walk my dog. <laughs> hey, no. Um, yeah, it's first thing in the morning, and I he's a he's a Weimaraner, so he needs lots of exercise. So we walk about uh, three three times a day for sure. Mm-hmm. But it is amazing what are you what you can learn about yourself from an animal, right? Because dogs respond to the other person at the end of the leash. There, right? Um, they smell your anger. They smell your mood change, right? It's not that they sense it. They smell it, actually. And so it's a very good lesson about being focused on yourself, not in an egocentric way, but um, knowing how your actions impact others, right? When some days the walk is terrible and he's just pulling and I'm yanking and it, it's a constant battle, right? And I, I always realize that, I'm frustrated, right? I'm stressed. I have things to do. I have deadlines to meet. I got to get back. I really don't want to be on this walk, right? And he senses it, right? And so it's not about him. It's about me. Mm-hmm. And I and I think that, you know, some people might argue with the analogy, but in dealing with other people, um, I think that's a fine place to start when you examine your own approach to people your own reaction to people. And it's, it's a tough test for me anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a good friend who um, is very Zen. I say she's got a, just a glow around her, but she talks about holding your space, right? And I mean, conflict is just part of our human condition. So when you're working with students and with parents, colleagues, um, you will disagree, but how do you hold your space? And how do you not get drawn into a negative vortex? And how do you realize when it's your own, um, I don't know, place, I guess, where you are that's making the world the way that it is, right? So, I mean, that, I don't know, not to get so existential, but yeah, walking my dog helps me stay grounded that way. It sounds that way. 
Uh, it reminds me of another article I just read that was out of The Guardian that was called uh, Walking is Our Superpower. Mm. And so, that, yeah, I, uh, it's not the first time that uh, walking, but also that other aspect of having another being that's feeding and giving us feedback. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, lastly, is there an organization or a person that really inspires you? It might be something or someone who, who's had a lasting impact or maybe someone that's really you're thinking about currently or in the short term. I feel lucky because I'm inspired by a lot of people, actually, in diff- different ways, right? Um, if I'm to think about in a holistic sense, I'm really inspired by a friend of mine whose name is Linda. She lives in Saskatoon. She's the one who talks about holding your space. I often find myself asking, what would Linda do? Because she's just got such a calm, beautiful way about her. And I I think she never gets upset, but I know that's not true, right? But she just accepts life as it comes to her. And I mean, she's got, you know, she's got certain beliefs about what you send out comes back to you and all that kind of stuff. And I maybe struggle with believing in that. But yeah, she she inspires me because um, she she's just figured out how to hold her hold her place. Um, another friend is the neighbor. We often walk our dogs together. She's also a teacher. I admire her because she also has a great way of grounding herself. And she's been through a lot of tough stuff um, that life has thrown her way. And you just wouldn't know it. Like she's very self-aware. I admire people who are very self-aware. So she knows when she needs to work on herself and what she needs to do. And um, despite all that's happened in her world, she's got a positive outlook and um, how could you not be inspired by someone <laughs> like that? So Now, you uh, mentioned um, that you're working on some, some new things that are not necessarily related to parents and schools and things like that. So, um, tell us a little bit about that. What are, what's next for you? What are some of the questions that you're looking at um, as part of your work next? Well, um, in terms of my educational research, I've started to look, it's still, still branching up from the parent thing, but um, one of the things that came up from the data from a recent study on the rural parent sense of community was the concept of risk. Mm-hmm. I found that there was a lot of risk discourse in the principal's language, right? Now, I need to get into classrooms and, you know, watch teachers because that way when a parent calls, I can say, no, I know exactly what's going on. So I've invited a colleague, Dr. Daryl Hunter, um, who's here in my department, to look at this concept of risk among school leaders. And we've been exploring that, and uh, it's been a learning process for sure for us because we're learning that risk doesn't necessarily have a concept beyond OH&S kind of mm. things for school principals So um, we're and social media. The, the need to manage the message is the big thing. So that's one area that's kind of new, it, branching out from the parent stuff. 
Um, I just recently completed, completed a research study for the Alberta Teachers Association. I don't know if you've heard about it yet, but, um, and that was on uh, just kind of getting the lay of the land on where school leaders are at and what the job is like. And a couple of terms that have come from that work, um, dilemmatic space, this one is a term from Honig, uh, Bonnie Honig, and it's really just describing where educators live in a place where there are always tricky decisions to make and, and never a perfect answer. Mm. The other one is moral distress, which comes from the health sector, um, knowing what the right thing to do is, but because of institutional or other constraints, you can't do the right thing. And I think that's a space where school leaders are living. And behavioral ambidexterity which is a term that hasn't been applied to education at all, except at the level of the academy, where uh, um, conceptually it means you're expected to be compliant with certain rules, but on the other hand, creative. And I think that's a term that can apply to school leadership as well, because you are expected to comply to provincial policies, um, well, even federal statutes sometimes. District expectations is a big one. Um, but at the same time, you're asked to be innovative in your school. Um, so, you know, you can probably relate to this. So you have to be ambidextrous, ambidextrous right? But in a behavioral manner where you're trying to achieve things that kind of have cross purposes, I suppose. Yeah. So, yeah, those are, those are some fun things that absolutely they seem all extremely fascinating and uh we're looking forward to seeing that so i want to thank you so much for speaking with us today and uh, i am truly looking forward to some of the the things that you've got on the horizon and getting into some of the recommendations recommendations that you've had so thank you so much well it was a pleasure thank you very much for inviting me Thanks for listening to this edition of the Intersection Education Podcast. Just a reminder that you can connect with us on our website, intersectioneducation.com, on Twitter, Intersection Ed, or leave a review on iTunes. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next time.